Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There should be a lot of noise on social media about this one, because I think this is kind of a loopy idea, quite honestly. But the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board has decided that it is now going to change how it names schools. There are schools in this city that have been named after people. That apparently is no longer going to be done. We are going to now be finding other things, I guess, to name schools after, but not people who have done amazing things in this community or, you know, done things that we should be on. I want to bring in Todd White. He's a school board trustee with the district school board. Sir, how are you today? Very well. Happy Monday. Thank you to you as well. I'll, I'll get it right. That was, that was what you call a swing and a miss to start with, but uh, hey, we'll get it right here. It was a good pivot. Yeah, thank you. Um, this to me is, um, well, I want you to explain what the thought behind this is, because to me it seems as though schools, other buildings, parks, streets are an opportunity to honor people who have done amazing things in our community. I don't really see why we would want to step away from that. Why are we doing that? Why is the school board doing that? Yeah, it's an interesting question, and of course I can only speak for myself. As, as you may know, when we discussed this at a committee meeting recently, uh, I did oppose the direction. So the ultimate direction is going to go to the next Board of Trustees meeting, uh, where trustees will have the final say. So there actually is an opportunity for further public discourse and consideration. Uh, so these types of discussions are certainly helpful. But in terms of the history, I've been part of probably about two or three different school renamings in the past. And uh, this one has taken, a, as you've described, a, a new direction. And a lot of it came um, down to, from what I understand, uh, the renaming of uh, Ryerson Elementary School, uh, which occurred uh, not too long ago. I wasn't on the board at the time, but learning from, from that history, obviously there are particular names in our history that can be problematic. Um, so that, I think, is what, what really got trustees and others in the community thinking of, is there another model where we can start to name schools and not end up in that situation where we have to change or rename schools because of controversial figures? Okay, and I get that, but at the same time, I don't know how many schools there are across this country, and I bet you, well, there is, I know there is a there are a fair number named after people, and so let's say there's two or three that are problematic. It's If you're going to say, like, this is literally the definition of, to me, of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. There's one or two problems, so now we can't do it for anybody anymore because we might have a problem. That just seems simplistic at the highest level. Yeah, and, 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 and that's my argument <laughs> as well. So, I mean, you, you, you nailed it in terms of, of the history and the significance of, of naming institutions, buildings, roads, streets after individuals. Uh, I know all school board cities have that practice, and they traditionally have. And there's been amazing individuals that have been represented. So you look in Hamilton, you know, some of the most recent uh, renamings have represented um, Shannon Kustashin, who was a young Indigenous uh, girl who, who faced a number of hardships and, and was a champion in a number of respects. We had Bernie Custis, who was an educator and, and associated with the CFL. You know, you're familiar with that new high school on that site. Um, and, and it goes on and on and on. And you think of other great school names like Lincoln Alexander, uh, Benetto. Uh, you can think of, the list goes on and on. And, and in terms of quantity, if you were to look at the list of our elementary schools uh, and secondary schools, we're up in the 90s, around 100 mark. And the majority are rooted in an individual name. So it's not just a couple or a few or a dozen. It's the large majority. So at the current moment, 
there isn't a recommendation to change the existing names. However, moving forward, um, as you said, uh, the initiative would kind of throw the baby out with the bath water. water. In, in my opinion, you know, this is one of those classic examples where you have good intentions, but you overshoot the target. And rather than address the issue at hand, you start to take away other other elements and let's call them unintended consequences uh, of, of, you know, that relate to things that people really do appreciate and, in fact, create a positive environment in our schools. And in my opinion, we don't want to lose that. One of the, uh, in the policies, there's eight guiding principles that will be in the new naming policy if this thing becomes the rule. Uh, one of them, it should reflect the activity, significance, and energy of a place. Can you please explain how, what we're going to name for a school based on the energy of a place? Yeah. And what does that mean? Really, yeah. And that's a really good example. And, and in some of the reports that were presented to trustees, there were suggestions that we name schools after geological uh, elements, um, different words and different meanings, um, indigenous terminologies, et cetera. And, and all of those have been used in, in certain um, respects across the board. Um, but my experience with it, and, and to your point around that guiding principle, is in terms of genuine consultation with a community, I think it's heavy-handed for a school board, for instance, to create restrictions. From my experience, consultation is truly authentic when you give the tools and options to the community and let them come up with a name and make the suggestions. Providing the restrictions from the beginning really, I think, creates a, a confusion and, and in some cases controversy and anger within a community that we've already made the decision for them. Well, let's allowing that community to have their input. Let me jump in for one second because I am familiar, uh, of course, with the Bernie Custis name. I wrote about it at the time. I know you were involved in that debate right. um, back at the time, the school right across from Tim Horton's field. And I do recall that initially it was not going to be called Bernie Custis. And then you put it out that the board, well, the board had initially asked people for names. Bernie Custis was the overwhelming favorite. That was ignored. Then a vote was given to the students... Now, correct me anything I'm saying wrong here. And they, again, overwhelmingly were in favor of Bernie Custis. So, you know, what's wrong with asking the people what they would like for the name of a school? Where's the downside to having a little democracy and saying, if people think that, as I say, Lincoln Alexander or Bernie Custis or whomever, if they think that's a good idea, why is that a bad thing? Yeah, and, and precisely. And, and that's where I think I've never been shy to, to hear from communities and, and tell us what you think. Um, if schools predominantly did not want to name after individuals, then you would see other names being suggested and a movement behind those names. But as you said, in many cases, the overwhelming feedback uh, when an individual is chosen, they really get behind that name. And there's many, many positive outcomes as a result. You know, I'll throw one other example, you know, for you, because, you know, just, just as we, you know, kind of think about naming of a school, you think of an individual. But another element that I don't think has to consider that could be an unintended consequence is that our communities and our neighborhoods around the city are predominantly named after individuals. Yes. And we don't necessarily realize that. So yes. when you think of high schools like Dundas Valley, uh, even the name Ancaster is rooted in a history of, of a particular individual. Uh, you think of Greensville, you think, okay, that doesn't sound very controversial, but Greensville was named after the Green family um, that lived in the area. So when you start to look at all of the names, even Coots Paradise was named after Thomas Coots. So there's a number of names that I think when you ask someone, should this be named after an individual, they don't necessarily put the pieces together to realize, actually, our communities are rooted historically in individuals' names. 
So to put restrictions on even using the name of the community as an acceptable name, I think is another you know weakness of this policy because we're ultimately looking for, as you named and read in the policies, a name that reflects the community. Well, what reflects the community better than the community's name? But this policy could restrict that. I, when I read some of these guiding principles, to me, it is the most, um, I, I don't know what the proper term is, like just, again, trying to, to, to reflect the energy of a place. Uh, how anyone is going to come up with some name that reflects the energy of a, of a school like poltergeist high. I mean, what, like, I don't even know what, what that even means if we start getting into that kind of thing or the, I mean, the significance, sure. The activity. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, park school, well, we've got lots of park something or others. I, it, it seems this is complicating it more than simplifying it. You put out a name, you ask people to vote on the name, the public votes on the name, unless they have, for some reason, as a lark, decided to do like, you know, Bodie McBoatface or something. Um, you know, okay, we go ahead. I, I, I just, I fail to see what is wrong with allowing the public to have a say. Anyway. Well, and, and that's where I think you're starting to get into what is good policy. And, and good policy usually is clear and that it can be operationalized and implemented very clearly. When you kind of have those vague statements, it has people scratching their heads to now that leads to further interpretation down the road. And, and what does that really mean when you get into the nuances? Well, and, and if someone came to you, not to you, to the board, to the greater you, we got to run here. If someone came to you, the board, and said, you know, we think that a great name for a school would be Nathan Cirillo High. Is someone, like, honestly, is someone going to say, no, that's a really bad choice? I think it would be a lot better if we call it Fallen Leaves Elementary. I mean, it just, it, it, it seems so like you're missing the point. Yeah, precisely. And I think that's where I think there's compromise in this policy. And I I think there's opportunity to allow, you know, communities, individuals, names. And if you look back historically, perhaps there have been controversial names. But if you look in the recent past, you know, the last couple of decades, all of the school names have been very reflective of very uh, multicultural, uh, very uh, anti-oppressive names, very inspiring names. There aren't recent examples of, of some of those controversial names. It really dates back decades and decades ago. Um, so you look at our current practices, I would argue it works. It's the, some of the historical pieces that may not, but our current practices aren't broken. That is school board trustee Todd White. I uh, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots of talk about the CBC and a little notation on their Twitter profile, Twitter page, Twitter handle, whatever you want to call it. Uh, CBC, at CBC, government-funded media. That's been added by Twitter, not by the CBC. Uh, In fact, the CBC is quite cranky about this now, and they say, our journalism is impartial and independent. To suggest otherwise is untrue. That is why we are pausing our activities on Twitter. Not happy at all. Stephen LeDrew is the former president of the Liberal Party of Canada. He is the host of the three-minute interview on YouTube. You can find him there. How are you, sir? I'm very, very well, Scott. I was just laughing at your introduction when you said the CBC was uh, was not happy about it. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit of an understatement. Laugh, I think. Well, I mean, see, I, I look at this, and first of all, I think, okay, government-funded media, yeah, it's on there. I don't know, though, Stephen, why they are so upset. Honestly, if only because anyone who's a fan of the CBC is not going to be changed, their mind is not going to be changed by this, and anyone who's not a fan of the CBC, their mind is not going to be changed by this. I don't see how this changes anything. You're absolutely right. And uh, everybody who's a fan of the CBC knows it's government-funded, and everybody who's not 
fan knows it's government funded, so it's it's the absolute truth. And for the the mothership CBC to get, as you put it, so cranky about it, it just shows how how insufficient the CBC really is. How so sensitive and uh, offended, easily offended, uh, they are, and or it is, and um, you know it is really laughable. But I mean. I am not a fan of the CBC. I think it's a huge waste of public money, and it was created by the Conservatives in the Depression. It had a glorious and useful purpose in Canada for years and years and years, but it's the only news service. Right now, it, uh, it does not serve that purpose, and I think that uh, it should be rehauled. And both Liberal and Conservative governments are faulted for not uh, revamping the CBC, because it's not going to revamp itself, Scott. We know that. See, uh, to me, part of the issue here is I think the CBC, uh, and I agree with you, there was a time when the CBC was really essential in this country. I think that time is long past. But I think that a lot of the problems the CBC is facing now with these discussions about government funded or not, these are things that it has brought upon itself. And at the top of the list, and there's other things too, but one of the most clear example, one of the biggest mistakes it made was during the last or two federal elections ago, I guess, when it sued the Conservative Party in the middle of an election for a tiny use, a, a use of a tiny bit of its news it, in the middle of an election, you could not possibly have stood on a hill with a flare gun any more obviously and seemed anyway to people to be taking sides. You're, well, you're absolutely right. It did take sides. There's no question about that. The CBC does often. And anybody who watches or listens knows that. Um, but the CBC is a total failure these days. That was a, what you just pointed out was a sign of its, uh, of its leanings politically. Uh, when the president, who lives in New York City, uh, went on her tour a while ago, uh, I'm not even sure, Scott, you're probably more in tune with this than I am. I saw her start off out west being interviewed on CBC TV by a CBC employee, uh, asked uh, pre-canned questions. And it was a pathetic little show, but it was put on to show how important the CBC was. I don't even think that this uh, president finished that campaign because everybody was laughing at it so much. I mean, the CBC is just a huge sucker of taxpayers' money in Canada. And we know, uh, if you look at the ratings, that every day fewer people listen to or watch the CBC. And I live in a small community, uh, you know, in middle Ontario, and I listen to the CBC radio every now and then just to see if it's changed, and it hasn't. I well, mean, some of the reporters, yeah. some, of the, some of the hosts, are, you have to sit there and say, I can't believe this is on the air. Well, and, and, and Stephen, one of the things that, uh, that I think, uh, one of the areas I believe the CBC has somehow whiffed is... If you're saying that you are independent and neutral, and that's fine to take that position, and it's fine to even believe you are that, and I'm not going to, I believe... uh, Scott, Scott, it's not fine to believe that you are that, because we know it's total... No, no, but I, okay, fair enough. I, I'm saying if you if you truly believe that as a member of the CBC p- family, that's okay. But how come? And, and I think a little self awareness is should be in place. How come nobody in the history of CBC has ever said, "Oh, you know what? You lean 
right. You lean conservative. There has never been anyone who has ever said the conservative leans blue. At some point, surely someone there would say, why is it that we're always, always, always being accused of being an arm of the liberal party? That should be to me, as I say, a little self-awareness and maybe we should reevaluate some of the things we're doing. Well, I think you're absolutely right. It's like uh, someone uh, saying, well, the Toronto Star that Liberal Party organ is supporting the Conservative Party. You know, everybody knows it's absolute crap. But the other thing is, Scott, whether it's left or right, and the CBC is left, at least it should be, as your show is, at least it should be examining the issues of the day in a fair and responsible manner. To point out all of the arguments, point out that there are two sides, three sides, five sides to a story, and just get the facts out there. The CBC doesn't do that. It doesn't analyze things. It doesn't say, okay, you know, we disagree with you, LeDrew. Come on our show and tell us why we disagree or tell us why you disagree. They won't do that. And that's what journalism is all about. And uh, the CBC has failed that for years and years. So, you know, it's it's about time that it does uh, come up for a uh, reevaluation. But you're darn sure, Scott, it's not going to happen with Justin Trudeau because he pays it a lot of extra money to uh, tow his lines. But does anybody, okay, we got to go here, but does anybody, and we started with this, does anybody not watch the CBC now because it says government-funded media on their Twitter handle, or does does, it, does anything, does one person change their view because of this? No, not one person, and it shows the fact that CBC is so grumpy about this, so offended that they're dropping Twitter, it shows how how overly sensitive they are in trying to defend themselves. They can't defend themselves, so therefore they shut out the world. Go away, world. We're going to close our eyes, keep our big salaries, and uh, and continue on. I don't know why. Honestly, I, I truly don't know why they would not just have completely ignored this, said no comment, we're going to carry on doing what we've always done, and you want to tag us with government-funded media or whatever. I, I, I don't know why you, I mean, I suppose, well, here's the thing. As soon as you do this, it looks like now you are in a fight with Pierre Polyev, which then exacerbates the problem because it reinforces in people's minds that you are now fighting with the liberal, the conserv- leader of the conservative party. Like this whole thing becomes self-fulfilling. Yes, you're absolutely right. And if they had the strength of their conviction that they were indeed uh, impartial and an honest network, you're right. They would just ignore it. Ignore you guys. We're carrying on. But uh, they don't have the strength of their own convictions on that, which is why they're so damn sensitive to, like, who cares what Musk does on, on Twitter? Yeah, yeah, I, he did I say. It with the BBC, he did it with the CBC. You know, if he said this about an American network, there would not be a whit of uh, criticism. Well, it, it, I, I, again, I, I just, it, to me, it seems that it's almost been set up as a fleece here to see how they would handle it. And now anyone watching who doesn't, didn't like the CBC to begin with because they believe it's biased. Now that Pierre Polyev is leading the charge to get this here, them pushing back looks like they're fighting against the conservatives, which is exactly what the conservative people were saying they were doing in the first place. It just goes on and on and on. Anyway. Got to run. Stephen LeDrew, I know, you have a, I know you've got a birthday party to get to. I appreciate you taking a few minutes. Thanks for doing this. Always my pleasure. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. This evening, the NHL playoffs begin. 
But for many people around here, the playoffs really begin tomorrow. They may tune in tonight, but not with the same level of angst and um, fear <laughs> and dread and clenched body parts as they will tomorrow when the Maple Leafs open their playoffs against the Tampa Bay Lightning. David Alter is a guy who covers uh, hockey and the Leafs for SI.com and the Hockey News, and he has a podcast, and he's an NHL Network contributor. And if there is a media outlet out there, David is probably contributing to it. Dave, thanks for the time today. Hey, you got it, Scott. Thanks for having me on again. So, you know, I, I wanted to talk to you today to... Um, to lead into this, but I got to think that the way more interesting conversation is going to be after the game or Wednesday, because if the Leafs lose tomorrow, what is the immediate level of full on panic and anxiety in Leaf Nation? In the Leaf Nation, it's probably going to be an eight or nine, but it will be an eight and nine in terms of how good they feel if they win. So it'll, it'll be the extreme one way or the other. Like, the one thing I remember is the Leafs won game one against Tampa last year. In fact, that they had a, a series lead all the way until the last game that mattered. Like, that's just really the end of it. That, look, if they do lose game one and they get humbled or they have to kind of figure stuff out, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Statistics are on their side if they win game one, but they've won game ones of these series before, including the one against Tampa last year. I don't think it really matters, but people live in the moment. We've been waiting a very long time for relevant hockey because these two teams have been kind of slotted in at 2-3 in the Atlantic Division for a long time. And so the anticipation's just going to fuel into that anxiety if things don't go right for the Maple Leafs, but it's not the end of the world. And, you know, people kind of have to learn to just live in the day and remember that it's a best-of-seven series and, uh, the past doesn't necessarily dictate future results. They say that in disclaimers about anything, whether you, <laughs> you make a life investment or whatever. And really, the Leafs are no different. It's just a hockey game. If this whole hockey thing doesn't work out for you, David, you should be a doctor with your bedside manner to talk people down. Because <laughs> I, I think that you are the exception to the rule. You are the realist and the calm voice of reason. If the Leafs lose tomorrow, I think there is going to be full-on panic because, oh, here we go again. Even though you're absolutely right, it doesn't mean anything. And even if they win tomorrow, I'm not sure I agree with the one assessment, though, that it's going to be feeling eight or nine in Leafland because of the very thing you also said, which was, well, they won last year and they still lost. I think they, I don't think Leaf fans unclench until the final buzzer of the final win because they've been down this road too many times with stuff that happens. Perhaps. And you know what? I would agree with you. I'm 40. I, I kind of remember the, the 2000s Maple Leafs that went into the playoffs and the 2002 Maple Leafs that went to the Final Four. Um, but when I talk to younger fans here, you know, everyone's picking the Leafs. Everyone's, everyone's feeling like the Leafs have the lightning pegged this year, like in terms of the improvements that they've made. Um, the way Tampa's played going into the postseason, they kind of look like they're on the downswing. That I think there's more Leaf fans out there that have kind of started to come around thinking that there's no reason why they shouldn't win that series, that if they do have a convincing game one win, that they will feel that good about themselves. I agree that that probably shouldn't be the case. I think Leaf fans need to be feeling about a five or six throughout the whole series until it's over, like one way or the other. Like just go watch the games, have fun with it. 
but see how these teams really match up when there's a lot on the line. These two teams have not played a lot of meaningful hockey until now. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, it's, it's really going to come down to that and just kind of seeing how different these teams are in the playoffs compared to the regular season. They're always different every year. Well, and when you mentioned about how you talk to younger people, it is amazing to me to think about the fact that there are kids who are graduating or have graduated from high school who have not been alive for a Leaf playoff series victory. I mean, that's just a, it's an, it's a stunning thing to think about that you could be in your first year of university and you've not been on this earth to see that happen. My oldest nephew turned 18 in February and it was a scary thing for me. <laughs> and then I also remembered, uh, cause he now follows the stuff that I do. He's more basketball than he is hockey, but he, he knows what I do and follows that stuff. And yeah, I had to make that realization. Oh my God, you were born nine months after the Leafs were last in the second round. The personification of their failures is you. I mean, that's kind of a negative thing to say to your nephew, but... (laughs) It it, it was weird. It it was really weird. But you know, the other other wide opening thing for me was when Luke Shen joined the Leafs for the second time in a row, and I work with other people in the industry that are younger now, and they're like, it's like I'm 10 years old again. I'm like, wait a minute, it's like you're 10? Like... For me, it was like I was 30. <laughs> yeah, well. It was just, it was one of those weird things where it just didn't seem that long ago, and that's kind of where it really gets scary. And David, let me put myself in the other category. Uh, you mentioned that your nephew was born uh, nine months after. I was born six months after their last Stanley Cup win. I've not been alive to see, uh, you know, and I'm getting up there. I've not been alive to see them even play in the finals in my lifetime. I, and I'm, yeah. and I'm, I, I, I gotta say, I like a lot of Chicago Cubs fans. Now that got resolved, but I, I kind of live this life thinking, you know, I'm probably going to go to my grave, never seeing them play for a cup. I've just come to that realization, that acceptance. If it happens, yeah, great. It happens. But, uh, I, I can't say that I'm going to be betting my mortgage on it. Well, look, it's, I think it's the law of averages. If there's anything you can take from that Cubs run, which seems very hopeless, is that one way or another, it's going to come around and there's always this regression to the mean. And if the Leafs have always kind of defied the odds, the opposite that way, that at some point or another, it's going to kind of come around. It just hasn't yet, hopefully for your lifetime. If you're a <laughs> fan, that's the case. Um, but yeah, the fact that they haven't even been to a final is what makes that Stanley Cup drought so big because the final four is the best as, as it got. And the last time they were in is when they were six teams. And so there's just, there's just been a lot of things you can point to. So there are, there is devastation in Leafland. There is this kind of scar uh, that kind of gets carried from year oh, yeah. to year, but it's, it's different. I think, look, I mean, I thought the Leafs were going to win the last two years. They really should have won in 2021. 2022 was close. Um, but there was a lot riding on the line for management and everybody. It's tense now. Like this is, this is where it's going to be tense, but you know what? It's really going to be a lot of fun to watch. I'm really excited to watch. Well, and you, you just mentioned something else about law of averages and things like that. There is a school of thought and I, I actually subscribe to this school of thought that if they could just get over the hump, they may just exhale and we may see a Leaf team go on a run. And I know some people are going to say you're nuts because they don't do that. But there's a part of me that just says if they could just get that series taken care of, we may see something. Perhaps. I'm not sure. Uh, it's like, I, I looked at some of the other things where it's like, oh, well, you know, if this happens, that's going to happen. 
and people will be okay with whatever. And I, I always prognosticate that, and then it doesn't seem to be the case. And I'll give you an example of just kind of expectations and everything. 2013, when the Leafs went to the playoffs for the first time in nine years against the Boston Bruins, they were heavily outmatched in that series. Heavily outmatched. They were down 3-1, and I think, I think expectations were so low. And then James Reimer sold them games five and six. And then they were going into game seven really with house money. Like, I, like everyone I talked to going in, you listen to sports radio. I worked at a sports radio station at the time. They were saying, you know, whatever happens after this will be remembered be that, that, that it, they, they got to this point. And that that's what people remember because they fought their way back to get to game seven. Nobody remembers any of that. They remember moments and they remember Third period. the game seven collapse. Yep. That's all they remember. No one cares how they got there. And then, so that could happen, but then something really bad could happen. And then in the second round that people will never forget that. And they'll point to that. Or it'll be that they can't get the Boston Bruins monkey off their back. Mm. It won't even be the first round one anymore. It'll be that one. There's always seems to be something until they can actually get this done. And so I think people should just enjoy this, forget what's happened in the past, and really just get caught up in that moment of playoff hockey because, you know, Leafs are not Leafs. It's one of the best in sports, and it's really something to watch and get excited about. I'm excited to watch the games tonight. Do you... um... I mean, this has been this has been what everyone's been pointing to, as you said a few minutes ago, for months now, because we've known who the Leafs are going to play. It's been Tampa for seemingly months. It's been lined up like this, and through the trade deadline, did did Kyle Dubas entirely change his philosophy? Because it seems for most of the early parts of his time. He really wanted that skill puck possession team that was just going to be that. And it seems as though somewhere along the way, some of the guys that he picked up at the trade deadline specifically for this moment don't seem to be the same kind of guys that he always liked. Is that a, do you, do you share that view that he has changed or that he's learned some lessons along the way that some of these guys really weren't the players he liked once upon a time? Yeah, I mean, there is something there to it. I, I do think that his taste in terms of roster construction have evolved in his time as GM. Certainly in 2019 and 2020, he went all in on skill and skill alone, like the Tyson Berries on the point and just guys who are just going to outclass them with offense. And, you know, my criticism of the Leafs at that time and the years after that against Boston's in the 18 and 19 is I always kind of said that the Leafs are built for where the game is going, but not where the game is. And Mm. so what happens is you get into these playoffs where the standard is very different and games kind of have to be tighter. And I think they've, they've come to realize that you have to have a little bit of everything. You have to have um, people who are just going to be intimidating there. That game against Toronto Tampa with all those new guys there, you saw a big difference. Every time there was a scrum, there was no backing down. You saw Luke Shen in a fight. You saw a bunch of other guys just getting ready to answer the bell. And um, I think you also saw in some of these games that replicated playoff-like scenarios where the offense isn't going and it's just defense and, and keeping everything out of the slot, you saw Toronto have some success in that, particularly that Boston game where the fourth line was the one that got the first goal of the game when 
nothing else was kind of happening for them. So, yeah, Kyle Dubas has kind of added to these things. There is some pressure there that he's into this year without a contract, and who knows what's going to happen after this year. And so I think he made a lot of these moves with the future in mind that he's got to have some different elements of his team, but I don't think he's completely changed the philosophy. I do feel like he he still builds the team the same way, and it was just more about thinking about the depth guys that have to be different and, and maybe just plugging in some of the holes that you had from before. We only have a couple of minutes left here. Who, who do you think, and, and everybody's got a different opinion on this one, uh, but who do you think on the Leafs is under the most pressure to perform in these playoffs? Because you could probably pick five or six guys to be at the top of that list. Yeah, I think the most pressure probably comes from Austin Matthews. I mean, he's had points, but I think there's more pressure on him to just really drive the series and be a difference maker. You didn't see that last year. You saw there was a bit of a dip in its play this year because I think he was working on becoming a better all-round player but also um, was hurt a little bit. So I think there's some pressure on him to really show that he can drive a series and take a team on its back if that's necessary. I don't think it is this time, but just to kind of make sure he he delivers. I think that Game 7 post that he hits in overtime, if that goes in, it's a whole different narrative and we're talking – completely different, not only about the team, about how Austin Matthews helped push him through. And I think that there's some pressure on him that he gets to perform in those per, those moments where he helps push the team forward. I think no one player is going to do it, but Austin Matthews has to be a factor in that series for success. Last thing, uh, if let, let's let's pretend here for just a second. Let's just look, we're going to be completely wild here and say, you know what? The Leafs don't just beat Tampa; they beat Boston, and then they beat whoever else is left, and they get to the Stanley Cup Finals. And again, I, I've not been drinking, and there's no legal dispensary nearby. I'm, we're just playing a game here. Are the Edmonton Oilers waiting for them in the final? I did a bracket today, which was kind of wacky, and I had New Jersey Edmonton in the final. So, yeah, I would agree with the Edmonton on that side. Um, but, um, yeah, it's it's kind of tough. And just to revise back my answer, I might actually add Mitch Marner to that just because he's from Toronto, and he feel, it feels like because he's from Toronto, he wears that a little bit more. So I think he, there's pressure for him to win this series as well. Well, was it a couple, was it last year or a couple of years ago that after they lost, it was Mitch Marner who was the number one whipping boy in this, in the city. And so, yeah, yeah, you know what? I mean, that, that could well be it. And I mean, a big part of that, I, I do recall a big part of that wasn't just losing. It was how they lost. And then it was the answers or the attitude or the, whatever it was afterwards. Um, you know, you don't have those problems if you can just win. If you just right. win, you don't have to worry about it. That's, uh, I guess that's the, uh, that's the message here. Uh, David Alter, you can see him on SI.com. You can read him in the hockey news. Uh, t- your podcast is? Rinkwide Toronto. Rinkwide Toronto. If you want to listen more, uh, great stuff from David. David, listen, we always appreciate you coming on. Thanks for doing this. You got it. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.